Hello and welcome to the 145th episode of the Filmmakers Podcast. I am Giles Alderson and this is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in a very, very humble opinion. Today, we give you a live Q&A direct from Dirt in the Gate with director Mark Jenkins. He's also the writer, he's also the cinematographer and the composer, along with his lighting cameraman Colin Holt as they talk about making their feature bait on 16mm film for Peanuts, how they hand process the film and how it's won a bevy of awards, including a biffer for Breakthrough Producer and has just been nominated for two BAFTAs, including Outstanding British Film of the Year and Outstanding Debut by a Director. Oh, it's such a treat that we have got this for you today because the film, Bait, is out now and you can go watch that either on Blu-ray or you can go to iTunes uh, or to Prime Video or the BFI player and pick up Bait, which so many people have and it has done so well. We're delighted uh, that Dirt in the Gate recorded this for us, especially for the Filmmakers Podcast and it is hosted by the rather fantastic Sean Kimber and thank you Dan Palmer uh, for setting this up in the first place you are a legend thank you my man he's a brilliant screenwriter by the way seek him out because Dirt in the Gate is a fantastic event held down at the Shelley Theatre in Bournemouth where they play old 35mm films 16mm films classics that you don't often get to see on the cinema anymore and they play them Uh, it's a real joy to see any movie in its original format of film and Dirt in the Gate do exactly that. Coming up, they have screenings of True Romance on the 15th of February, perfect for Valentine's Day. Uh, or they have Withnail and I on the 15th of May. You fancy any of them? Check out at Dirt in the Gate on Twitter and all the details will be there. Or go to ShellyTheatre.com uh, in Bournemouth and you will find out so much information. So thank you again for doing this brilliant podcast with Mark Jenkins, the director, writer, uh, cinematographer, composer, editor of Bait. It is a wonderful film. You will have heard about this film, you indie filmmakers out there. If you haven't, I suggest checking it out. It is weird, it is wonderful, it is delightful. No wonder it's getting a huge splash at the moment. Uh, and you can watch it now, uh, and that's pretty cool. Um, so before we get to that live Q&A down in Bournemouth at Dirt in the Gate, um, I want to thank you so much for those of you who have gone out and purchased and watched A Serial Killer's Guide to Life. Honestly, it's been an amazing week. Uh, the tweets and reviews and the love has been pouring in uh, and Staten and Poppy and Charity and myself and Katie have been absolutely delighted. Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much. If you haven't yet had a chance, please go to SerialKillersGuideToLife.com and check out this movie. Uh, we poured our heart and souls into it. We made for micro budget and it is available now. And just to get any movie released is a real joy. So do support if you can. If nothing else, just go to our Twitters and retweet it and maybe someone else will. So all those people that have, thank you. Um, the soundtrack is available 
and it is a beautiful soundtrack. At every Q&A we've done so far, everyone has mentioned how beautiful the soundtrack is. It's, it's made by a composer, Lawrence Lovegreed, and it is available now. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you are a composer, you like that kind of stuff, do check it out. Do, do, do. So the producer, director, writer, Staten Cousins Rover Serial Killer's Guide to Life and Poppy Row, um, the producer and star, will be joining myself and Dom Lenoir at the next Make Your Film event. And it is a week today. I can't believe it's crept up on us that quickly. It's the 28th of January, next Tuesday. So get your tickets, get on down there. Because not only Staten and Poppy going to be there with myself and Dom Lenoir, of course... Uh, and Martin Neely and Robbie uh, McCain as well helping us host Um, but it is our second guest down there is going to be Gareth Ellis Unwin now Gareth is uh, he's got a prolific career as a producer and now he runs um, Screen Skills uh, and he's going to tell you all about that and how you can uh, accelerate your career but he's been a line producer and exec producer and he's best known for his work on the King's Speech uh, which won Colin Firth uh, an Oscar. And it also won him an Oscar. Um, and he also won seven BAFTAs for that film, including Best Film, an outstanding British film. So, this Tuesday, make your film. If you're in London, come on down. I think all the uh, early birds are sold out, but it's only a tenner. It's a tenner. Come on down, network, meet other filmmakers, meet screenwriters, producers. We'd give it away for free if we could, but the venue costs money. Uh, And we have to give something for our uh, guests for turning up, just a little petrol money. So do come on down if you can. It's going to be a brilliant event, as always. Link is in the show notes. Come on down, come and say hello, if nothing else. Uh, The Make Your Film event is sponsored by Performance Insurance. They're amazing. Uh, I get just so much joy from them when I call up if I've got an issue, and they're so lovely. They will be down there at the Make Your Film event so if you need insurance for any of your films that you're doing your your, uh, interviews your promos whatever it is to be honest you have to have insurance just it's so important Um, God forbid that something goes wrong and you don't it's going to cost you the person making it um, putting their name as producer so get on it go to performance say Giles Alderson sent you say the Filmmakers Podcast sent you they will look after you So uh, we will see you on Tuesday at the Make Your Film event. If you don't go, you miss out. Okay, we've got a rain dance discount for you. 20% off their latest course, which is the Actors Foundation Certificate on Monday, February the 10th. Uh, And we're giving you 20% off that. And the code is ACTING2020. Link to that is in the show notes. And I want to give some shout-outs this week, some more shout-outs. So you guys have been incredible. You really have this week, and I just want to shout you guys out. Thank you so much for your love and support of uh, last week's episode with Staten and Poppy. We really had so much fun, basically, and we talked about how we made that film. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to that one. It's last week's episode, talking about how we made A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, and it is fascinating uh, because we are so excited because it's the release that day. And thank you for all your love on Christy Wilson-Cairn's episode as well, which is the week before, and she wrote 1917, and now... She has just been Oscar nominated. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, Christy. So, shout outs for all your love this week go to Stephanie Davis, Moses Sabanda Key, Peter McKiernan, Kelly Jubilee, Laura Neve, William Porteous, Jenna Suru, Jonathan Hall, who emailed me a fantastic email. Thank you, Jonathan. Absolute pleasure. And the hypo, who gave us an absolutely delightful review 
Uh, and if any of you lot would like to review this podcast, please go to your podcast depository of choice and write a lovely little review. It means the world to us. We can tweet about it. More people hear about the podcast and more people listen. It means we can get even more guests and carry on doing this, uh, which I love doing. So support if you can, because it's free. This is free for you. So if you like this in any way, shout it out from the rooftops. Tell your friends, any filmmaking people you know, let them know about this podcast. Um, so next week's podcast is going to be with a fantastic Shola Ammo, who is the director and writer of The Last Tree. Again, another fantastic indie film that swept the board with awards. Uh, he is a delight. Myself and Robbie sat down with him. So that is for you next week. So for now, sit down, relax. And enjoy this fantastic Q&A with Mark Jenkin, director of Bait, his lighting cameraman, Colin Holt, and hosted by the lovely Sean Kimber, just after the movie has finished playing on its 60mm print down at Dirt in the Gate event at the Shelley Theatre in Bournemouth. You can't help but enjoy this one. Here you go. everybody. Um, I'm Sean and I will be kind of hosting uh, this uh, Q&A. Uh, we've got about probably just under just under half an hour. Um, so I'd just like you to show your appreciation please for Mark and Colin. Thank you. Um, I think what we're going to probably do is I'm going to start off with a bit of a stage discussion, a couple of questions up here, and then we'll open it out to the audience. So it would be great if you could be uh, thinking of your, uh, your, your questions while we're, while we're chatting, if that's all right, if I can actually see anybody. If we can start off then, um, just wonder, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the idea behind bait and, kind of, and, and how it developed over, over time? Yeah, it started in 1999, when I came up with the original idea for it. And at the time, it was an idea about a young, uh, a young Cornish fisherman who was making a video diary of his life um, just to kind of capture his way of life. And he borrowed... The idea in the film was that he borrowed a video camera off somebody in, the, in his village and started making a film about what he did day to day. And as soon as he picked up the camera, he realised that the life that he, lifestyle he thought he had was being compromised and it, it wasn't going to be able to continue in the way that he wanted it to continue. Um, also, the camera became a catalyst for other people to come and address the camera and talk about their point of view about what way the community was going. So it was effectively like a found footage film originally. It was going to be sort of one long play mini DV tape was going to be the... Um, the final film, but carefully scripted, but as if it was happening naturally. But then that that went by the wayside when, pretty much when Apple released the iPhone, it was, and the, and, and the idea that having a video camera in your hand was anything special sort of disappeared, because now probably about 90% of people in the room have got a, like a 2K cam, camera in their pocket. So the idea that a camera could be a catalyst for anything sort of disappeared. And so that was that all happened... You know, up until ten years ago, I suppose, and so I, I put the put the film 
away. Also, the producer I was collaborating with at the time, was a really close friend of mine, died very suddenly, so the project sort of stopped and, um, and was put away. And then about, I suppose, six, five or six years ago, I, I, I went back to shooting film again. Um, and we made a 45-minute-long narrative film in the way that bait was made. And, there, and, and that worked, and it was quite successful. And I decided that I wanted to make a feature film in the same way, and I looked around for projects that I had, and I had this one on the shelf. And just sort of looked at it and, and wondered whether it could survive a complete change of form and whether the story and the theme at the heart of it could survive, and I decided it probably could. But, you know, it was 20 years later, so instead of it being a, a film about a young fisherman, it's now a film about a middle-aged fisherman. Right. So it's, inter- so it's interesting. So in effect, the kind of the form changed quite a lot over that 20-year period, but the kind of theme stayed fairly constant. Yeah, exactly. And, and I did think, you know, that the, the, that was a massive change, but actually the film in its original incarnation was all about form. It relied on the form of the video diary. And, and now this film entirely... Well, doesn't entirely, but keeps getting pointed out to me by critics and audiences that the the, the form and the content complement each other. So it relies on the form in the same way. So it's not as big a change as I as I thought. Sort of learn through doing Q and A's and and reading reviews that maybe it isn't as big a departure as I thought it was. Right. I mean, it's interesting because you talk about the way in which the idea developed over kind of a twenty-year period, and you've said in interviews before that it's like the eclipse was one of the kind of catalyst points for that back in nineteen ninety-nine. Um, do you think that the kind of issues, the themes that you're addressing in relation to the tensions between the communities, have increased over that twenty-year interim period? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I originally wrote it, it was set in a North Cornish fishing village, and it was so specific to that village that I thought other people within Cornwall wouldn't even be able to understand the story. So now, having travelled with the film internationally since February, and everywhere I go with it, the people who, I, who talk to me about it all, all say that the, the theme at the heart of it, no, no matter what your point of view is, it, it's certainly a, a theme that's very real for a lot of uh, people and a lot of communities, which is great critically and commercially for the film but quite depressing for society in in general and i guess i mean because i mean obviously you've been making films for a long time i think i think it's about 17 films you've directed one way or another now and and it's very much a kind of you're very much a cornish filmmaker aren't you so these kind of themes preoccupy you through most of your filmmaking yeah i think so i mean i want cornwall's the context for my work really um but i wouldn't say this film's about cornwall and I also wouldn't really say it's about fishing or tourism mm. for me. It's more, the heart of this film is um, uh, the problem with entitlement and privilege That's and, and what that means. Um, that's what, really what the film's about. So it could be set anywhere, but I could only make this film in Cornwall. Because if I tried to make it anywhere else, you know, if I tried to make it in Bournemouth, I'd be guessing, you right, know. Right. And... and, and um, and there's a real problem with that in in cinema. I, I think you know people do guess. People think, oh, that's an interesting place to put a film, and then they guess what that area is like, and then you get problems with stereotypes and cliche and all that kind of stuff. Which, which I just think, you know, I, I don't know if I can write anything authentically. But the thing that I try and write authentically is the world that I know, and I know fishing communities and so well I, I don't know fishing communities I know one fishing community so I try and set things in that world because right. I know I know these people 
Right, thank you. I, I mean, I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit about your kind of approach to um, the, 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 the very distinctive shooting of this film and how you went about kind of shooting it. And maybe we can also bring Colin in as well in terms of the kind of lighting and, and, and camera work as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, so it's, it's shot on a Bolex H16, the, cl- the classic 16mm clockwork camera. So it's, it's, it's a spring-wound spring camera, which runs for tw- about 27 seconds before it has to be wound again. It's shot on 100-foot spools of 16mm black and white negative, which I then hand-process, sort of frame by frame, so hand-process the whole, um, all of the rushes, which I think for this one was about 8 kilometres, about 5 miles of film. Right. We took like three and a half months to do it. And also we shoot everything silently, and then everything's post-synced, which you might have noticed. <laughs> Despite the frame accurate dialogue syncing, uh, and 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 then all of the sound is 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 added afterwards, and so and and the limitations of the way we shoot. So you shoot one take of everything, and then one safety, which is attempted to it's supposed to be the same as the first take. So it's not like an an, an alternative take; it's a replica of the first take in order to have a safety in case I mess up the processing or the camera does something. Uh, so we're, we're very limited, and then in the edit, I will create something out of the footage we have that isn't necessarily what's in the script, because I don't shoot any coverage either. There's no wide shots. We don't sort of light a big wide shot and then push in for mid shots and medium close-ups and close-ups and reverses and all that kind of stuff. I, I watch the film in my head, as I imagine it's going to be, and then I write down all the shots that I see in my head and then put them in an order, and then we shoot them. And then when it comes to the edit... I realised that I might not have imagined all of the shots that we actually needed to make the edit work. So that's right. when the creativity in the edit comes in. But I, I love that. I love that in the edit, you know, manipulating time. Because ultimately, for me, cinema is just two things. It's, it's capturing light and manipulating time. Capturing light, I will hand over to the man who lit the film. That was very smooth. That's good. He segued in. Yeah. What would you like to know? Well, maybe just tell us a little bit about your experiences of kind of working on bait and kind of your, okay. your, your um, role. As Mark said, it was the second collaboration that we'd done in, in this way, which was, I say, quite basic, sort of three-point lighting, really. Um, going back to the project that we did before, I remember getting a phone call from Mark saying, do you fancy coming and trying out this project? Do you know anything about lighting? I was like, well, I know a little bit, um, sort of, you know, basic interview lighting. And he said, nothing. He said, that's more than I know. Come on down. Bring some lights. <laughs> I'm so sorry, we're not supposed to say that out loud. So, uh, so yeah, that, that kind of worked out all right. And, uh, so we came back for this one sort of uh, very much the same way. Um, quite, I say, very simple, um, just using, say, a basic three-light setup, also with some reflectors, uh, good old sunlight, um, really basic stuff. I mean, it's just the simple framing, simple lighting. It, it kind of, by limiting your choices, you actually... It, you get a sort of focus from that, don't you? You don't have a myriad of, of solutions available to you. So you just, you are forced to sort of pick one and go with that. So we sort of developed a routine and a, and a, and a way of working that, that became a really sort of smooth and effective workflow in a sense. So we got a lot done in the day. Um, weren't doing huge amounts of relighting, not so much, you know, not, not too many lights physically to work with. So it became quite a smooth and um, simple workflow, I think. Okay, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about the, the way you kind of you, 
when you shot the film in terms of the way you use the reels? Because I mean, I've read some interesting things about how you what you do with the beginning and the end of the, the roles, for example. Yeah, so the, the hundred foot spools, um, which lasts for about two and a half minutes, Bob. So you have a bit at the end of each role and the and the start of each role that may or may not be fogged, um, may or may not be accidentally exposed mm. to light when the camera's being loaded because the camera's just loaded in a in a changing bag, which isn't necessarily totally light proof. And quite often it was it we'd be doing it sort of on the beach in broad daylight, so never quite sure how much of the light, how much of the film has been fogged, but. Because we're working with such a small amount of stock, we'd never want to waste anything. So if I'd loaded the roll and you know we were getting ready to shoot a take, um, rather than just burning off the first few feet that might be fogged, I would just quickly shoot a, a close-up of something um, that was in the vicinity. Then at the end of a roll, you know, I might have five foot left on a roll and I'm getting ready to do your close up and you've got some dialogue but it's going to be more than five foot so I'm going to have to change the role before I can do your take rather than wasting that five foot you know I might get a, just a cutaway of your foot that might help in the edit to then make a scene work and so it end up if we shot 130 rolls so we basically had 260 bits of film um, which were effectively meaningless um, they weren't. They didn't come from the script. They weren't ever written, but they were within the scene. So they, I had this belief that they would. They kind of. Well, I didn't have this belief. I'm, I'm reverse engineering meaning because I'm sat in a Q and A at the time. I didn't know why I was doing it. I just didn't want to throw away the film. But in the edit, these things kind of present themselves to you. Um, the, the the prime example is uh, in the pub with all the carved wooden figureheads that I know that pub really well and I, I never pay any attention to those figureheads. We recceed the location before we shot and looked at angles and stuff. Nobody ever mentioned these figureheads. But then there was so much dialogue in the pub that we were shooting a lot of footage and so having the start and end of roles, I was just spinning the camera and I'd say to Colin, just light that figurehead there, you know, five seconds of a, a wooden figurehead and then didn't think anything more of it and then when it came to editing the film I saw all this footage all these strips of film that had these faces on them and I thought I'd be interested if we start cutting them in with the real people and then what I started to notice was that every character in the pub seemed to have a doppelganger and some of them are really weirdly similar and and there's one character there's one actor Jake who plays one of the friends of Hugo who didn't have a wooden doppelganger, but then I found out I somewhere filmed this little brass thing of a face that was nailed to a wall somewhere. I, didn't even, I think it was in the pub, but I didn't, it, it might have been in like the toilet or something. And um, and that looked exactly like him. And suddenly he had a doppelganger as well. So then everybody had a doppelganger. And then I started cutting it in. And you know, and then in Q and A's, I say, yeah, you know, they're all in there deliberately because they represent the sort of timelessness and how all the characters from history are, are all within the pub and everybody's watching this humiliation of this young lad and it's all about... But it's bollocks. It was just... <laughs> it was just... They were just there. Right. And, you know, if we... And this isn't a criticism of di digital technology in any way. If we'd shot on a format that we could just shoot loads of stuff, we'd have probably just shot the shit out of everything in that pub. And then when it came to the edit... 
wouldn't have even reviewed it because it would just been hours of hours of kind of irrelevant stuff. But because it was a very small amount of shots that I'd also hand processed, so I'd put the work into process and there's strips of films that are, you know, it's there sort of reminding me that they exist. Suddenly they have much more significance than, than they should have done. Okay. Just a, just one a quick show of hands. How many how many filmmaker students have we got in the room? Because I thought they sort of recognised quite a few. I mean, just just wondering because obviously something that's very important to your work is the kind of handcrafted nature of it, kind of shooting it, processing it, editing it. Um, I mean, what advice would you give to kind of any budding filmmakers if they wanted to kind of go down the route that you've gone down uh, in terms of working with film? Well, if you've got a passion for it, just I'll just say do it. I mean, that's, what, that's why I shoot film. I, I, I started out at 17 shooting rolls of Super 8 and sending the cartridges to Germany um, and getting them back, you know, rolls of Kodachrome and putting them on a projector and they were positives. So, you know, being able to project them and, and making soundtracks on cassette tape. And that's, when I, that's how I fell in love with film. That was what I was excited about. And then I, I came to Bournemouth and studied and we did carried on doing that kind of stuff. We were shooting on video and things, but, you know, very basic video that you had to be creative with, and but also carried on shooting with Super 8. And I developed films in that way and was working on short films in that way. And then at some point, I sort of got, as technology, as the technological um, improvements increased, I kind of got caught up in that to a point where I made a film in 2010. I loved the film, but I shot it in a way that was how a lot of people were shooting low-budget digital films at the time. And I just felt, oh, I don't like this process. And then I got ill. I told the story a lot of times. You might have heard this in the interview before. But I, I got ill and, and um, had to have an operation, which at the time wasn't great. But now it's just the best thing that could happen because I had about a month where I had to lay on the sofa and, and couldn't do anything. And I watched Mark Cousins' The Story of Film documentary, you know, the 15-hour thing that he did. And I watched that a couple of times. And I just listening to him talking about film and being so enthusiastic. And I just thought, I used to feel like that about film, but I don't anymore. And so I decided I was going to retrace my steps and go back to where I was, fell in love with film and was really excited about it. And it was actual film. And it was the, the sort of alchemy of taking something and seeing an image appear on it and it, and understanding it because it was a material, you know, like hard drives and digital. I don't, I don't understand where the film is. I don't get, you know, I, it's probably me, but I don't, where is the film, you know? The idea, digital technology ju is just too, is it, I just can't follow it. So, and it's probably the control freak in me as well, that I need to be able to touch the film to understand that it exists and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, I, going back to shooting film five, six, seven years ago, whenever it was, just reignited my love of filmmaking, which means that... Um, it resulted in me developing a process like this where I'm actually making films that are now kind of commercially viable, but in a way that I would have done as a kid, meaning that I write the script, I direct it, I shoot it, I process it, I edit it, I do the theme tune, you know, I do... Because I'm like a child. Why would... I don't want anybody. I, I've got, you know, very essential collaborators who I work with but everything I can do I want to do because I'm a childlike control freak and I and I love it I love every aspect of filmmaking so I go to bed I've developed a process where I go to bed on Sunday night excited about getting up on Monday morning so in answer to your question I think if anybody wants to do this you know 
don't copy pre-existing processes. Work out where your enjoyment is for it and make films in that way. Because what this film's proved, uh, or seems to have proved, is that nobody knows anything because we've got a sort of a hit film. And it's a black and white 16mm hand-processed film about fishermen post-synced, shot on a 43-year-old camera. If you pitched that <laughs> and said, oh, and it's going to take nearly half a million quid at the UK box office, yeah, right. people would just go, you're joking. But, you know, but the, somebody said the other day, quoting William Goldman, it, this film is the proof that nobody knows anything about anything. So just do your own thing, I think, is, is what I'd say to film students. And don't, you know, listen to everybody, but don't, you know, just make your own mind up. Brilliant. Sound advice. I think that's a, probably a good note to open it up to any audience questions. Do we have any? Oh, a couple of hands. Brilliant. I, I, maybe if we take one down here to start with. If you don't mind keep, keeping your hands up in a bit, so cause it's quite difficult to see. Uh, I had uh, two questions, but hopefully they'll be quick. I wanted to ask what you used to record the audio, because it's also got like a really interesting, almost analogue feel. And I also wanted to ask, was editing a technical nightmare? Because, like, with the hand processing, did you have to go back and reshoot anything? Like, with sync, was it just, did it take ages, basically? <laughs> so everything's post-synced in my studio. So once, the ha once everything's processed and the studio's like a wet space, um, it then becomes a, a dry space where I use electrical equipment. And I build a voiceover booth in the studio and the actors come in one by one and record the dialogue and it's it's done I record everything to um, I record it digitally but I, re I record it through an old valve compressor to just get a, some um, a nice analogue quality to it and then I, I do loop it through um, quarter inch tape as well just to get a bit of warmth into it just to I don't know if it makes any difference or whether I just like standing there turning actual knobs and faders and stuff rather than just tapping it might just be sort of for the sake of it um but i prefer an, i prefer a valve compressor than a sort of using digital compression and then with the editing i mean the the, the editing the once the negative is processed it is then scanned so it's a 2k scan which then i do the edit with digital um files and then it's um printed back to film at the end of the process so it's it's not it's not an it, we don't have much footage. So um, we had four and a half hours of rushes for an hour and a half long film. So we finished shooting in the middle of October. I processed the film up until sort of Christmas time, and then it was scanned digitally, and then I got it back in January. So January was the first time I ever saw any moving footage. So January was the first time I knew whether we had footage that worked. I'd looked at individual frames from the negative on the light box to check the grain and stuff, but I didn't know whether we had any movement problems or transport problems with the camera or anything like that until the January. But it was four and a half hours footage, so when the digital footage turned up, I put it on the projector at home, watched it all through in the morning, had dinner, and then watched it all through in the afternoon, all of the rushes. So I watched all of the rushes twice in one day, and so by the end of that day, I had a edit in my head. I sort of knew how it was going to work. And then the edit probably took about three days to do the first assembly and then from then it's gradually just tweaking it as voices were added and as soundtrack was added and as the score was added and we were done by 
July, it was the, uh, July, I think. It was the end of the second week of the Tour de France. I remember that. Because <laughs> I was watching the Tour de France on my iPad at the back of the dubbing theatre whilst I was supposed to be listening to the film. People kept saying, what do you think of that? And I'd go, oh, what? Brilliant, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's for, end, yeah, middle of July. So it wasn't a long process at all. Thank you. Um, both of you kind of already talked about um, limitations on set, be that in the format or, or kind of the equipment you have or, or the takes you do. Um, birthing something kind of brilliant or something that you like in film. I was just wondering more of your thoughts on restrictive filmmaking, uh, creating something you wouldn't have thought of or something, something new. Do I need to repeat the question yeah, now? Okay, so just to summarise, the question was the the way the limitations create something new within the form. Is that right? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think the limitations are are everything really, and the more the more limitations, the better. Because I, th I think really the complete freedom is re is really a bad thing in terms of filmmaking. Um, so I, th I think, um, you know, if, if everything's possible, then for me, nothing ever happens. Because just as you're about to sort of do something, you think, well, I could do it that way or I could do it this way. But, I mean, with us, going back to what Colin was talking about, about equipment, for the, on set, we had a camera, one lens, um, and then I had a light meter that was around my neck, and I had pockets full of rolls of film, and then Mikey, who was the camera assistant, had the tripod. So we'd come down from our digs in the morning to the unit base to have breakfast. And the whole camera kit was on the table with the breakfast. You know, there was nothing. It was all so simple. And then, likewise, Colin had three lights and a reflector. And that, and that was it. You know, so, and like Colin said, you just, you, if, it doesn't, if it doesn't work, you have to find a way that it does work. Rather than, oh, you know, we're trying to do something really ambitious. Um, let's just chuck loads of equipment at it. You go, well, we, you know, we can't. We can't remove those people over there that are on holiday, and you know, we don't want them in their shop in the shop. But we can't move them, or you know, there's there's bits in the film where which were going to be done in much wider shots, but are in close-ups because there was a huge tall ship being moved in the, to the harbour in the background. And so we end up doing stuff in a close-up montage because we kind of have a wide shot. And then you hear, you read a review saying, oh, the amazing close-up montage of blah, blah, blah. You go, yeah, well, we're forced into that. But it's, but I, you know, and I think we should take credit for that because it is that setting up a situation and a working practice that has got those limitations that you know that on the day you're going to have to put your heads together and work out a way of doing something creatively rather than chucking resources at it. And that's when you end up doing something new, I think. Should we go to the one straight behind? What was the process of composing the score for the film and trying to find something that would suit the style and tone? Okay, so just to repeat the question, what was the process of composing the score and finding something to sit, suit the style and tone um, that I bought myself a um, little analog synthesizer and it was mostly I, you know I, I'm not I can't play music so but I'd like to look at this little analog synthesizer and a um, friend of mine Gweno who's actually on the soundtrack of the film she used one of these on her last album and I thought oh, I quite like the idea of playing around with one of those sort of as a break from working on the film 
because I'd been spent months hand processing the film that I was editing and I thought I need something to do in the studio that isn't linked to the film that I can just have a bit of time away from and I bought this little synthesizer and started making drones and working with an effects pedal and a delay pedal and the valve compressor and all these kind of things and just started making these this these drone sounds for myself um but because they were sort of playing in the studio whilst i was working on the film i started thinking actually they work quite well in the film but i felt very self-conscious that you know having taken on all these roles i was now proposing that i scored the film as well like i was some kind of musician but i that didn't stop me from laying the tracks into the film just to see how they would work. And I, and I really liked the way that... It, it's, to me, it sounded a bit like a sort of out-of-tune accordion or something. Obviously, it's got an association with the sea. Uh, and, they, and they tended to mix quite well with the sound of the sea. And it, after a while, I did say to, the, to Kate and Lynn, the producers, I said, you know, those drones that are in the rough cut, I quite like them. To, you know, I'd quite like to keep them. And, and they said that they agreed, so... They, that was it. They stayed in, but it was the bit I did. It was the bit that I was very self-conscious about because, and, and that's why it's, it's uncredited because I felt a bit of a fraud. But now, um, I've just I've signed a record deal and it's um, it's been released. It's actually out digitally now and released on vinyl and cassette on the seventeenth of January. <laughs> Brilliant. Any other questions? Maybe come out. Sky back here, and then if we come down, that's all right. Yeah, hi. Uh, two things, really. Uh, first of all, the statement. Uh, thank you very much for getting the uh, syntax of the Cornish dialect. Pretty much spot on. Uh, second point: um, How on earth did you manage to find different angles of Charleston that hadn't already been exploited by Paul Dark? Okay. So I'm good. So I'm going to repeat that for for the recording. Um, was it well, well done for getting the Cornish syntax correct? Yeah. And um, how did you find different angles of Charlestown Harbour? We, I mean, the outside of of um, Charlestown Harbour is a, a, a pretty big harbour, so we had to shoot it one direction to make it look like it was much smaller than it was anyway. So, and, and I think that's the other thing because we're working so quick, we just sort of worked out the angles we could shoot, and then we go right now we've got to tell this story either looking that way, looking that way, or looking that way, and then it became simple. It's a sort of like ruling things out more than sort of exploring the possibilities, I think. But it's, yeah, it is, it is interesting how many people, and how many Cornish people as well, who know Cornwall well, get the harbour wrong and don't, don't recognise it as Charlestown. But then I think, you know, because of what they do in the inner harbour with all the film stuff, the outer harbour is so underused now, that I think people forget about Charlestown Harbour and think and forget about what an amazing place it is, with you know, with the beaches either side and all that kind of stuff. Because the other thing, because we bought, we bought, we, you know, we paid to be there, so we had the run of the outer harbour and both of the beaches. The temptation was that we could have used the beaches both sides, but and and so again, we just had to go right. We're going to make a decision that we're just going to use the beach on the left-hand side, and. And we're going to forget that the other beach exists, so we're not tempted to use it. So I think that was, yeah, just those those limitations and knowing what we couldn't, what we couldn't show. Hi, uh, fantastic film, by the way. Um, I was just wondering, what was your inspiration for the uh, the montage where there's the three scenes being cross covered each other? So um, Martin and Hugo at the pub, uh, the couple cooking their dinner, and um, 
Um, yeah, so what was the inspiration between the cross-cutting the three dinner scenes? Um, montage. Montage, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I don't know if it was a, an, an influence really other than um, trying to build tension out of things that were effectively quite domestic. Uh, obviously the, the, the moment in the pub is, is quite threatening and at times quite comical. But the other two, um, the other two meals are supposed to be sort of domestic and uh, and quite mundane, and how tension could be built within that. Originally, it had a drone sound on it that went over the top of all three cross-cutting scenes, um, which built the tension. But actually, I think there was a. I watched the edit back at one point and, and had the the drone track muted, and suddenly it was loads more powerful and again it's one of those things where I can claim that you know there was some amazing insight into realizing that silence was much more powerful than the drone but it was probably a technical mistake that made me see it without the drone and and suddenly the, the silence was the was this was the was the terrifying or not the terrifying but a sort of unnerving element within it but I think that that's the other thing of not recording any sound if you don't record sound you don't have any sound until you add sound on and adding sound on takes a lot of time so I do watch the film with no sound on quite a lot, and it's the first thing that I look at. You know, maybe not on that scene because I did put the drone over it, but the idea that would this work with no sound at all is a question that I'm asking all the time. Because you know, for me, the the glory the glory days of cinema was where there was less diegetic sound within films. Brilliant. I'm afraid we've only got time for one more question. So there was a gentleman down here. So two simple questions. Um, what was your budget and what was your shooting schedule? How long did it take you? Okay, so the question is what's the budget and what's the shooting schedule? So the budget um, was about 150,000. Um, and that combines, you know, actual, the actual money we had was significantly less than that, but we had a huge amount of in kind support. And it was 21 days, wasn't it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is Ballyhack County Cork? No, no, it's Walker. Oh, right. Oh, where the ferry is? Yeah, yeah, my cousins all work on the ferry. Oh, I made a film, I made a road movie on Super 8 a few years ago. I went from... I went, yeah. Um, I went across on the ferry. I shot it in 2004, but then I made the film as a sort of... Um, as, a, as a, a diary film with a made-up narrative, so it's difficult to remember what I actually did and what I wrote I did in the film. But I, I went from um, Ross Lair down to sort of Ballydonagan, yeah. the Bear Peninsula. Yeah, and what, yeah. Well, it's very much like Cornwall, exactly. <laughs> which is what my films, that, that film that I made, it's called Dear Marianne, it's about that. She trying, I, I needed to get away from Cornwall a bit and ended up going to somewhere that was more Cornish than Cornwall was. <laughs> So the, the other thing I was uh, wanting to ask you is, I really like Martin as a character, and I'm sure everyone you know, felt that kind of connection with Martin. How did you think, you talked about your process before, that you, you thought about everything visually before you actually got into the, the, you know, the making of the film. My question is, empathy, I was trying to figure out, because Martin's a prickly character, you know, but I liked him a lot, and I was trying to figure out where did you make me care for him and I, I wondered whether it was just him putting the fish on the doors, which is a great touch. It's really mm. subtly done, and he does it twice, I think, in the, in the film. But 
it's very effective because it is how working class communities look after each other, and you know, especially in these you know dark times that we're in. Um, and I wonder whether that was a conscious thing that came out in your visualization, or whether the actors participated in some way and contributed. Um, well, Ed, who plays Martin, who's a Sonostal boy, um, he. Oh, did you? Ah, uh, right. So, so, yeah, I mean, we talked about we talked about that character. I mean, he, he by his own admission, he's sort of he's he's from the clay country and you know Sonostal area, so he's more of a sort of mining community than a fishing community. So the specifics of it are very different. And he said he didn't, you know, he would have to do a lot of research about the fishing community. But effectively, like you say, the working class communities they're they're all they're all the same, <laughs> which is a really important thing to remember at a time when we're being told that we're all different and you're different and I'm different and, you know, that actually we're all exactly the same and we've all got the same hopes and fears and desires and everything. So, but also with him, you know, as a character, he's a bit of a dick as well, which, which makes him human because, uh, you know, I'm not going to say everybody, but, you know, I'm I'll own this comment, you know, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a dick as well. You know, we've all, I, now I am projecting, but I think you know the imperfection of the human character is where the empathy comes from. It, it can only be you and audience members who who decide whether that works or not. But certainly, you cannot have a, a sort of whiter than white hero. As, but his, his heart's in the right place, you know. And there's a lot of performance within the character, as well as Ed performing a character. The character he's performing is performing as well. So in public, he kind of he's very antagonistic towards his brother. But when he then goes round to his brother's house the next morning, you know, leaves fish for him and it goes in and he chats to him because he's his brother. So it's all these sort of contradictions and imperfections and performance that goes on in life that actually, you know, he's just somebody who's trying to do the, what he thinks is the best. And and for me, I think that all the characters, are, none of the characters are evil. They've all, even, you know, even the guy who comes out in his pants and starts quoting mythical laws about what noise you can make in the morning, he's still, you know, this is holiday and he might have a really difficult life and he might have a really stressful existence somewhere and he's been sold a lie, he's been sold a, a website image of this place he's going to stay in that doesn't communicate how bad it smells and how loud it sounds in the morning and things like that so actually they're all just humans and rubbing along and this is just an example of where you've got a lot of people who feel disenfranchised and how if you're disenfranchised and you feel forgotten and you feel alienated sometimes that can manifest itself in destructive ways which i think might be why the you know, people have commented that it's a, it's a, it's in some way a Brexit film. Not again, not my intention. But brilliant. I really hate to shut this down because it's a really really interesting uh, discussion. Um, but it'd be great if we could show our appreciation to Colin and, and Mark for coming in. And can I just say? At the beginning, I didn't mean to say anything bad about Boscombe. I was, what, I specifically meant like the high street, because we, we walked up there and I just said to Colin, God, this is just, you know, there's a queue of inappropriately dressed people queuing to go into the academy and there was like a little bit of a fight breaking out outside McDonald's and I was like, God, oh, this takes me back. So yeah, no comment on Boscombe, just, I'll, just keep, I'll keep digging, I'll keep digging. Cheers. Thank you. And thanks to the audience as well for some wonderful questions. Thank you.
Wow, wow, wow. How amazing was that? Thank you so much, Sean Kimben, everyone at Dirt in the Gate, Dan Palmer especially. Thank you so much, brother. Really appreciate you setting this up for us. God, did we learn a lot there from Mark. Uh, I know it's Q&A, so it's always a little difficult to uh, fully express and get into so much detail. But some of those questions from the audience were amazing. So thank you as well. Those people who asked those questions uh, really, really appreciate that. Um, it's just really interesting, isn't it, how someone can just go out there and make the film with their friends and it can do so well. Um, and it is achievable. And I want you to know that. And if you're struggling sometimes, which you all do, then take heed from this. Take heed from Mark's lesson, which is, do you know what, I want to go and do this on my own, and I'm going to do it my way. And you might not like this, but I do. And I appreciate what I'm trying to do here, and and go out and make your film. And that's what's so important. Um, So thank you so much uh, for the honesty, and thank you so much for listening. appreciate your time. Speaking of making your film, the Make Your Film event is, a quick reminder, uh, next Tuesday, January the 28th. So get your tickets. Come on down. Come and join us. Uh, I can't wait to see you there. So uh, until next Tuesday, which is with Shola Amo, the brilliant director of The Last Tree, go out there, keep making your film. Remember, if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it's your duty It's your duty to send that elevator back down. See you next Tuesday. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye.